0: Hey guys, this is Danny J. And before we get into the episode, I want to tell you that this was the first time that I've ever opened up and shared the story you're about to hear in so much detail publicly. And to be honest, many of my closest friends have never heard it all, or at least not told the way that I told it. And there were parts that were really hard for me to share. I just got done listening to it. And because I was going off of 20 years of memory and emotion, there were a few times where I felt that maybe I wasn't telling it as clear or concise as maybe I could have. Um, But I really hope that the emotion and the lessons resonate with you. And just know that it's really real. I didn't do any outtakes, and while I thought that maybe I should re-record it, I think that it's best told raw as I did. So I just wanted to thank you ahead of time for holding space for me to share this part of my life and my story with you and the lessons that it contained. And so that's it. So please just don't be hard on me for my lack of articulation. Sometimes I get a little self-conscious of how well I'm able to uh, speak and convey a message. So I appreciate it. I love you. And here's the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Best Life Podcast. This is Danny J and I am doing a solo episode. I have to tell you, uh, I'm a little bit nervous about this one. I don't know um, why because I'm alone, <laughs> but I think the story that I'm about to share is uh, something I haven't really talked about really deeply and, and also the person I'm going to be talking about is going to be interviewed after. So I just am ready to get into this, but um, just wanted to share with you how I was feeling before I start in on this. So uh, before I even get into it, I want to just give a quick shout out to our sponsor Organifi. Um, I've been drinking the gold nearly every night. I actually make it into a little latte, you guys. Little secret. You warm up some milk or cream in the microwave, 30 seconds, like maybe a quarter of an inch in the cup. Take a frother from Amazon. They're like 10 bucks. You hold it in your hand, it froths it up, makes it nice and foamy. And then I make my Organifi Gold, put the frothy cream on top, and it is so delicious. And I've had people say that it helps them sleep. I don't know because I literally never have problems sleeping. So maybe it does. For me, I haven't noticed a difference because I just can sleep no matter what, no matter where I am. No matter what sounds are going on or what lights are on. So, go to organify.com and you can get 20% off every single time using the best life at checkout. Just the best life, all lowercase. And Organify is O R G A N I F I, Organify. So, all right, all right, we're going to get into this. So, today's topic. Some of you know this, some of you may not. This wasn't a big public thing that I ever really talked about for many years until very recently. And that is the story of me being a pregnant teenager and placing my baby for adoption. And um, I kept this a secret, actually, for a very, very, very long time. And I'll tell you why I kept it a secret in when I tell the story. But it's not a secret anymore. And what's really exciting is I'm recording this, and I'm actually going to have my daughter, Courtney, come on and do the episode after this and ask her questions about how she felt growing up, uh, what she knew about me, what she knew about herself, how she felt. I think that adoptees have a very unique scenario and um, I'm really excited to see what she's going to have to say and I'm really excited that she was able to come do, she's able to come to the interview but I also want to tell you guys that she is actually the editor of this podcast so she hears every single one so I think the reason I'm nervous is that I'm telling this story and I know that she's going to be listening and editing before she even does our interview so Anyway, just wanted to give you that back background information or background story. All right, so kind of let's get into it. Um, I'm going to have to go back a little farther because, you know, sometimes we think of somebody who's a pregnant teenager. You know, I know MTV, uh, was it MTV Teen Mom, came on a few years after. Uh, a few years after I had her, and I remember watching that show and thinking, man, I thank God that wasn't on when I was pregnant, because I felt like it almost glorified teen pregnancy, and my experience was really tough. And I feel like most teen moms had a very similar experience to mine, if not um, harder in some ways, maybe some easier, but I'm just going to give my full experience of how I even found myself pregnant at 15 years old. What did that look like? And how did I make a decision to place my baby for adoption? And it goes back before I was 15, obviously, kind of where I could say the story really started is around when I w- was 13 years old. I had actually been sexually abused by a family member few years uh, off and on from like age five to age 11. And this family member was only a few years older than me. It was a cousin. And uh, when I was 13 years old, Uh, His mother had been abused. She'd been in and out of marriages and constantly living with us and not living with us. And that's how it happened off and on because they would be living with us at some points and then not. And so this happened again. His mother got really badly, uh, I don't know, she had her jaw wired shut and had to leave and basically no one was able to take care of my cousin. So my parents offered And at this point, I was getting to the age where I knew more about what sex was and I was really afraid of being raped. He never had gone that far, but, you know, had done a lot of things to make me really terrified of him and and make me feel not safe. And so I found out that he was coming to live with us and I put up a fight. You know, I told my parents I don't want him living there. I'd like a lock on my door. I was really, really scared of him living in our home. And, you know, they just kind of put me down for it. They were like, listen, you're selfish and we need to take him in and there's no one else. And I was saying, well, why can't he live with his dad? Why does he have to live with us? And they didn't understand because they didn't know what had happened. So I kind of became withdrawn and he came to live with us. And of course he did things too that again would terrify me. He, I remember one particular time there was like steak in the fridge. I guess it was, we were going to cook it later and there was all the blood on the plate. And just to to scare me he said he would like worship the devil and he poured the blood into a cup and then he made me watch him drink the blood and he would just do things like this that really I don't know they like I said I was 13 and he was in high school I was in middle school and so it was just things to really kind of make me fear him. And so because he was in the house, his school would get out around 1.20, and mine would get out at 2.30, and my parents wouldn't get home till four. So that meant every night, every day after school, there'd be at least an hour and a half that I would be alone with him. So I stopped coming home from school. I was afraid to be alone with him in the house. I wasn't sure what he would do. You know, he'd make sexual comments, and he'd do things like this that would just freak me out, like the blood thing. And so I got to a place where I would just wait at school, I'd go sit under a bridge and just cry and I waited for the late bus, and the late bus wouldn't get me home until 4.30. Um, And then by that time, usually one of my parents was home. And so I lived with this kind of terror for quite a few months. And then that same year, my father dropped the bomb on me that he was not my real dad. He wasn't supposed to tell me, and he kind of just blurted out that I was born from a sperm donor. And we didn't know who my dad was. And so then I created a story about Well, whoever gave whoever gave me life was probably a homeless person who was jerking off for money so that they can get drugs. And so I had no other uh, I had no other evidence to tell me otherwise. My parents said they didn't know who the, the donor was and to me I felt disgusting. I felt like I shouldn't be here. I felt like nobody was looking out for me. My parents weren't looking out for me. I just found out that I wasn't who I thought I was. So I had this major identity crisis. I felt like my biology was from a, an addict. And then to top that all off, I was going through puberty and my gymnastics, I was in gymnastics, my gymnastics coaches started weighing all of us. And we got to this place where they were, you know, they were really putting on the pressure that we needed to lose weight, that we needed to be a certain size, and so I had just, it was just the perfect storm of what you don't want your early teen to be going through. And then, of course, I'm in school and we're dealing with talking about sex and boys. And and so I'm hearing about these things and I'm learning about it. And then I'm in church and I go to a very strict religious church and they start teaching us about, about sex. And pretty much the narrative was that having sex before marriage is equal in God's eyes. Well, it's right below murder as far as like going to hell, right? Like if you murder someone, you're going to hell. And second on that list is having sex before marriage or adultery. So I was learning these things. I was feeling guilty for what had happened to me. Um, I remember hearing stories about, you know, someone who had been raped and I don't know where I picked this up, if it was at church or something I read But almost to the extent of someone saying, well, she should have just died fighting instead of getting raped because now she's going to hell because of that. And so I literally felt that I was doomed. I was going to hell. I was worthless. I never should have been here. My body was my enemy. Um, I was fat. I couldn't control anything. And I, I literally just felt like the most hopeless, worthless, useless human being on the planet. And man, I've never really uh, talked about this. And it makes me sad for my old self because as I'm narrating, (laughs) and just kind of going back in my mind, you know, I, I think about a child or a young person, and I can see how they can get wrapped up in these thoughts and how from the outside and as an adult and with maturity, how that just doesn't make sense. But This is where I was. And I spent most of those days after school thinking about my suicide and thinking how I didn't want to live anymore. And at one point, my dad had guns. You know, they're very conservative and live in Las Vegas. And I went to his closet and I pulled out a rifle and um, I didn't know how to load it or work it, but I held it to my head just to see what it would feel like. And I kind of made this deal with myself. I thought, well, I'm going to commit suicide, but I'll wait till I'm at, like out of, till I graduate, right? Till like I'm in college, so my parents don't have to deal with it. And the same year, I started making myself throw up. So with the whole, uh, with the whole, weighing at gymnastics and all that, I started down this path of being bulimic, and making myself throw up. And that was just like, completely exacerbating all of the feelings I had of worthlessness. And I thought. This was my first line of defense was I'll commit suicide after I get out of high school. My second line of defense is that if I get too scared to commit suicide, at least the bulimia will kill me because I had researched enough to know that most eating disorders, uh, eating disorders are one of the highest um, mortality mental conditions, you know, either through suicide or through starvation or heart attacks from bulimia. I mean, there's so many ways that people with eating disorders can die. And so as crazy as it sounds, like bulimia was my backup plan to die. So fast forward two years, I finally did end up telling my parents about what happened with the cousin. Um, I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was like, I felt like he was getting away with things. I felt like I was more and more scared to come home. And he was like killing animals. And it was it was to a point where I, I just lost it. And I finally, and my mom was yelling at me, she was telling me I was selfish. And finally, I just told her what happened. And her initial reaction was, it was a long time ago, get over it. And that was my like, holy shit, she doesn't care. She's telling me to get over it. And looking back now, um, I get it. You know, I, I did need to get over it. And I, I did, you know, I did eventually. And it's, one of those things that forgiveness is magic and there's a lot of things that, and lessons that I learned, but I don't think it was the right thing necessarily to say to a 13-year-old who was in pain at the time. And that was a big slap in the face to me of not only can I not be in my own home, now I can't even trust the people who I was who I thought were here to protect me and here to help me. And so this really just led me into constant and consistent depression and suicidal thoughts. And the bulimia got worse. Um, Well, let me back up. So after she told me to get over it, there were some conversations that were had in the family. And finally, after the school year ended, they sent him to live with uh, his parents or his dad. And so while he did leave, I was still left with the bulimia. I was still left with the suicidal and depressive thoughts. And I was still left with all of the feelings that came during that year that he was there. So that was, I was age 13 when that started. So by the time I turned 15, um, as you can imagine, it only got worse and worse. And I found myself throwing up every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, I ended up finding a boyfriend in ninth grade. And he was somebody that I was drawn to kind of because he was almost depressed like me, I should say. Um, But when I found out and I started talking to him, he had a lot of insight and he was very, I felt like he was very smart. He ended up, he said he had gone to like a mental, I don't want to call it a mental institution, but a behavioral health center for, you know, mental illness and, and addiction and that kind of thing. And he came out of it and he had learned so much and I remember being so jealous of of what he had found when he had gone through that. And I remember him asking me, do you want to be happy? And that was one of the craziest questions because never in my life had I thought to ask, do I want to be happy? It wasn't even something I considered. It was something that was just like, I am where I am. I'm never going to be happy. I'm not going to live. And so the thought of do I want to be happy was not even a question I could answer. And so he was really working on me and trying to help me see my value and my worth. And so I have to say that, you know, this, even though uh, I did get pregnant from him, um, well, you'll see how I think that these these people saved my life. So long story short, uh, I was just in the middle of a massive depression, anxiety attack, losing my shit. And my mom had been driving me back from gymnastics and I was crying hysterically. And I told her I needed to go somewhere to get help. And she asked what I suggested. And I told her the behavioral health center, you know, mental institution, if you will. And she's like, you're not going there. You're not crazy. And I told her, if you do not take me there, I'm going to kill myself. I need to go. And she begrudgingly took me there. So they had us go check in, and I think she kind of took me there just to be like, okay, let's check you in, and you'll see you don't need to be here. So they took me in one room. They took my mom in another room, and within 20 minutes, they said, we're going to admit your daughter, like she needs to be here, and pretty much took my rights away and my mom's rights away from me because I was a threat to myself. They put me on something called SP3 or SP4, can Can't remember the... But SP stands for suicide prevention. So the highest number, I can't remember if it's four, four, three, two, one. And one is like less, they're not worried about you. And then if you're off of SP, you're not. they're not worried. So whatever I was on is the highest level of suicide watch. And so they got me in. They took everything away from me. I had a journal with a, a wire bound book. Uh, you know, like the wire spiral bound notebooks. They took that away because they thought I would even kill myself taking the wire off and hanging myself with it. They took everything away. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom. I wasn't allowed to pee without supervision. I wasn't allowed to, basically I had somebody following me every minute of the day. Um, At nighttime, I had the door open. There was a nurse who just sat in the hallway where I slept to make sure I didn't get up and do anything. If I did get up to go to the bathroom, they would follow me and stand there while I peed or did anything. It was high, high, high security, making sure this girl does not hurt herself. And that's really where I was. And so my mom was shocked. She was angry. She didn't know why that I was saying that I wanted to kill myself, she thought that I had everything. She's like, "We've given you everything. We take you to gymnastics. You're good, you're good in school. Like what is wrong with you?" But she didn't know the pain I was feeling and what I was hurting and how I had created this story about myself of how I was so worthless and how I didn't deserve to be here. And when I was admitted, they take all of your vitals. They take your blood. They want to see if you're on drugs. They want to just test you for everything. So unbeknownst to me, they also tested me for uh, STDs, drugs, AIDS, and pregnancy. And on day two, I went into my doctor's office and he sat me down and he said, we got your pregnancy test back and it's positive. And immediately uh, the first thing I said was, well, I'm going to have an abortion. And he goes, okay. And I said, well, look, I'm going to kill myself anyway. So why does that, you know, why does it matter? I literally thought it doesn't matter if I have an abortion. I'm already going to kill myself. In my mind, I figured if I'm already going to hell for having sex, then it was lo- it was almost like that black or white, you know, all or nothing, If I'm going to go to hell because of this, I'm going to just make it all worthwhile, I guess. So I'm going to go ahead and have an abortion. I'm going to kill myself because killing yourself is also like murder. So it's like there's nothing I can do to get back from where I was. I cannot undo what I've done. I'm fucked. So these are my choices. So I said I was having an abortion. I said I wasn't going to tell my parents, and they were okay with that. In the state of Nevada, I didn't have to have a parental consent to have an abortion. And I just asked if I could tell my boyfriend. And he was the only person at the time that I felt like I could confide in, that wanted more for me, that wanted to help me. And he was really the one who urged me to go to this place to stop myself from ending it. And so I was able to call him and I, I couldn't even say, uh, th- I couldn't say the words. I was actually just barely, uh, my period was supposed to start that day. So I didn't even know And I kind of thought I couldn't get pregnant, you know, with the eating disorder and everything. um, We had been very careful the one time he took off the condom and uh, I didn't realize it, but he pulled out. And so I was like, yeah, it could happen, but it wasn't um, likely, you know, and I had lots of friends who had sex all the time without condoms. So it was one of those things where, geez, I can't believe that this actually happened, but it did. So I called him, and I told him I needed to tell him something. And I, I just said, I can't say it. I can't say it. And he guessed. He said, are you pregnant? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're going to have an abortion, right? And I said, yeah. And that was kind of the conversation. So two days later, my counselor convinced me that I should tell my parents. And we invited them in. We, I told them I'm not going to tell my mom unless... My counselor was there with me. And what happened was my mom showed up early and my counselor wasn't there yet. My dad wasn't there yet. And she guessed, she just said, did you start your period yet? I said, no. She goes, are you late? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. She goes, you're pregnant. And they said, yeah, that's what you're here for. And she just started screaming. The first thing out of her mouth was, what about your gymnastics? (laughs) Which I just laugh now because I just, it was like her shock. And she screamed. She tried to grab my hair. She tried to slap me. The staff there ended up having to separate her and take her to another room because she just was trying to go after me. I lost it. I'm hysterical. My counselor got there. I was so mad. I'm like, this is why I didn't want to tell anybody. And then by the time everything calmed down, my dad was there. My mom was there. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to have an abortion. And they were not happy with that decision. They were very religious. They don't believe in abortion. They said, no, you need to place your child for adoption. And I said, there's no way I'm giving up. I'm First off, there's no way I'm going to get fat You know, this is my eating disorder brain talking. There's no way I'm going to get fat, have a baby, and then give it away to a stranger who knows where this child is going and what kind of life it's going to live. Like, you're an idiot. I'm having an abortion and I'm killing myself. Like, that is the bottom line. And I was pretty set on this plan. So while I was in um, Charter, uh, that was the name of the place, for almost a month, And I met some people in there who had cars and had money. And I made a plan that as soon as I got out, uh, I would get get the abortion. I was able to get a ride from one of the guys in there and borrow the money. It was like $375. So I actually had a plan to go on a Wednesday. Chris was going to pick me up and we were going to go and have it done. I wanted to get it done as soon as possible before there was like a heartbeat or before I could like, I don't know, before I felt like there was a viable baby. And um, I was about 12 weeks at at this time, maybe 12, 13 weeks, so I felt like it was early enough in my mind. And the Monday before the abortion, my parents had an appointment with an eating disorder clinic that they had talked about sending me to. There was this clinic in Utah, and it was a live-in facility, and they thought I should probably go live there for a year to get a handle on my eating disorder. So while my parents were downstairs talking to the staff and learning about the clinic and what it looked like and the cost, they sent me upstairs with this woman named Heather. And Heather was just kind, and she started to talk to me, and she just asked me questions, and she told me about herself. And... She told me that she had been raped by her brother and her brother's friend um, when she was in high school. And after that, she became anorexic. She, she starved herself kind of as a way of self-protection. And I remember just feeling like I just wanted to hug her. And I just could empathize and feel what she felt of, with the family abuse and trauma and then the eating disorder piece. And she started to tell me how she had two kids and she was no longer able to have children um, because of her eating disorder. She ruined her body and she was no, no longer able. And out of my mouth, I blurted out, I want you to have my baby. And I remember almost thinking like at the same time as I'm saying it, my eyes getting wide, like what are you talking about? And she goes, what? And I said it again. I want you to have my baby. She goes, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I want to give you my baby. And I'm saying this, but my mind is going, you are having an abortion. You're not having this baby. You're not giving this baby to this woman. And I can never explain. I I don't, you know, I'm not a, a religious person in the way to say like this was God or but it wasn't me it wasn't something compelled me to speak and say this but it wasn't the me that was me then and I went home and I called my boyfriend and I told him I said I want to give our baby to this lady and he was just supportive and said okay whatever you want to do so I canceled my abortion appointment and I didn't tell my parents that this was my plan And I was uh, about four months pregnant and Heather called me crying and she said, I can't adopt the baby. And I was going, well, why? She was bawling and she said, well, it's $50,000 for a private adoption. We just don't have the money. And now at this point I am, you know, 20 weeks along or more, it's too late for an abortion. And I don't know what to do. So I ended up finding out about a social work agency. And I went to go talk about adoption because I thought, well, I was going to do this for this woman. Maybe there's still still way. So my boyfriend and I ended up going to the agency. And I said, listen, I cannot have this baby and just give it away and not know what happens and not have any contact. And the idea and the thought of that and just also the thought of the child maybe finding out the way I found out my dad's not my dad terrified me. I didn't want this baby to grow up and then all of a sudden be like, surprise, these aren't your parents. So I was explained to by my social worker that adoptions were different now and they have something called semi-open adoption. And she said, you get to choose the parents and you're able to meet them and they can keep in contact with you the way it works with semi-open adoption is they'll send pictures and a letter every month until she's one and then once a year until she's three and then after 3 years old there's no contact and i left finally feeling a little bit at peace like okay i think i can do this if i get to choose who she's with and i'm able to have some kind of contact and know that she's safe and know that she's okay then I think this is what we're going to do. And I made that decision completely fearful. I still was worried about the weight gain. I still was worried about all this. But I was, I had kind of, I don't want to say no choice, but I was in, right? I was in. And I went to school and I uh, i had a girl just kind of come up and ask me something. She goes, oh, what are you going to do with the baby? And I had just decided maybe the night before. So I was a little bit like kind of happy with it and feeling peaceful with this idea. And she goes, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, well, I'm actually, I think I'm going to give the baby up for adoption. And she goes, oh my God, you should have had an abortion then. You might as well. It's the same thing. You're just giving it away. And I was crushed. I was crushed. She said, I should have just had an abortion. It's the same thing because I'm just throwing. Oh, she actually said throwing it away. And that was the day that I stopped telling anyone. I didn't tell anyone I was placing the baby for adoption. I ended up going to a new school the next year. I had her in the summertime, so I didn't go back to the same school. I didn't want anybody to know. And I kept my mouth shut for over 12 years. So I met people later on in my life who never knew I had a child, never knew I placed a baby for adoption. It was this sense of shame for me because of the one opinion of another teenage girl saying I should have just had an abortion. It's the same thing. I'm throwing my baby away. So. Sorry. So my boyfriend and I went to the social worker's office almost every day after school. We read through tons and tons and tons of profiles, letters that these families would write to the birth, future birth mother, you know, we'll love your baby. We'll take care of it. And you know, to me, it was so cheesy. So many of them said these things. I'm like, of course you'll love my baby. Like, give me something else. Give me something so I know that you're the one. And It's probably different now. I think you could, uh, the computers may maybe make it easier, but we had to go through these papers, you know, like actual handwritten letters and papers. And we had to read them, read through dozens and dozens and dozens of letters. I mean, hundreds of letters, really. And it was literally the day I was due. I still hadn't had a family picked out yet. We had one kind of on the back burner. And the one that we had picked out sent another letter. I guess they revised their letter. And it was just perfect. And so we go, these are, this is it. This, these are the ones. And um, one of the things we wanted for her was we wanted them to live in another state. I didn't want to have the, the chance to maybe run into the family I wanted them to be college educated because that was big, like put into our heads that we needed to go to college. I wanted them to already have another child because I wanted my daughter to have a sibling. I had a brother and I always thought it was cool to have somebody to grow up with. And there were a few other things that we looked for. And what really stood out was this family. They talked about each other. Um, You know, they talked about how they wouldn't be perfect parents, how they weren't always the best and they made mistakes. And I think that was a turn on for me because I felt like I didn't want to be judged. And I felt that they would be the kind of people who were a little more open and less judgmental. Now, let me just kind of give you some context, too, about what was going on in my home at the time. So, you know, I was brought up in this religion and my mom felt that one of the reasons I ended up pregnant was because I wasn't going to church enough. So during this time, she was making me go to church every Sunday and go to all the church activities. And of course, she thought I just needed to have more girlfriends at church and have more friends at the church. But the parents of the girls at church didn't want them talking to the pregnant girl. So it was this interesting standoff of me going to church, feeling more judged than ever, (laughs) and also being told that that was the reason why I was even pregnant because I wasn't doing that to begin with. I remember going to just like Walmart or Target and having people give me dirty looks and mumbling under their breath because they could tell I was a teenager. I had braces. I was 15. And I also remember um, a girl that was pregnant in my high school who had a baby shower. And my mom said, we're not having a baby shower for you. This is not to celebrate. It was like, we weren't allowed to give any kind of um, celebration to this. And these were hard things for me because at the same time, I was feeling this protection and love for this life that I had, um, that I was creating. And I felt so protective of my baby, of people wanting, they were telling me as soon as some families heard that I might not be um, that I wasn't having an abortion. Everyone was coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, I know somebody who can't have a baby. You should give it to them. Oh, I know someone who can't have get pregnant. You should give it to them. And I felt like uh, I had a piece of meat in front of a bunch of hungry wolves. And I remember saying, this is a child. This is a baby. This is not up for grabs. And I felt so responsible that she did not ask to be here. She did not ask to be put in a situation with a teenage mom and the house that I was in and the, the fighting that was going on at the time, she didn't ask to be here. So I had to give her something better. So it was a lonely road and I am so thankful to uh, her dad, my, my boyfriend then, he was so great. And he honestly held my hand through it all and helped pick out the family. And I had my next big epiphany, which was, I can't kill myself now. Because what if she grows up and she wants to find her birth mom and she found out that I committed suicide and she thinks it was her fault? because she was born or because she wasn't supposed, quote-unquote, supposed to be here, that her mom killed herself. So I suddenly had this new reason that I had to live. I gave birth, and so many people said, don't look at her, you're going to get attached, don't hold her, you know, have them take her away, and I refused to listen to any of that. Um, We had her for about seven days was in the hospital for three so I was able to spend time with her I held her whenever I could you know I was sleeping and resting and I was actually pretty sick after the delivery and then one day she went home with a foster family the paperwork was taking a little bit longer because it was a different state the adoption was in so one day we were able to go to the social worker's office and her father and I held her and just spent the day with her and then the final day we met her parents. And I was so scared. You know, I was told, well, you're going to change your mind if you hold her. And, And I was afraid, what if I met them and I didn't like them? And I wanted to change my mind. But ultimately, I knew that the house that I was in at the time was not a safe place. It wasn't a good place. There was too much struggle. There was too much anger. There was too much fighting. And I met her parents. And I felt so good. And my only regret is that we weren't allowed to hand them to her. So they brought her to the room and we put her in a dress, a dress that I was blessed in. And we kissed her goodbye and walked out. And I remember I couldn't even cry. I actually felt so peaceful. And of course the tears came later um, because once she was gone, I was expected just to forget that it ever happened. I wasn't allowed to grieve. I wasn't allowed to mourn. And I was supposed to just go on with my life. And I did. Um, But how I went on with my life and how I give her so much credit for saving my life was that decision of realizing that I never wanted her to think that my suicide was her fault. And to if anything, I give her all the credit for me being here today. So I really shifted. I turned my life around. I decided that I didn't want to be what everyone said I was going to be. You know, I was told, well, you're a pregnant teenager. You're going to drop out of school. You're going to, you know, be in poverty. And I turned things around. I got straight A's. I graduated early. I went to college. I graduated early there. I got my master's degree. I became like this massive overachiever, And it was almost as if I had to make up for being what I thought people judged me as. You know, like I'm a broken, pregnant teen, and I had to like prove by going above and beyond being everything that was not that. And I would say that it's helped me in so many ways, but it also hurt me in a lot of ways because I was constantly trying to achieve. And in the back of my mind, what I was trying to make happen was... I thought, I only have 18 years. If she wants to meet me, I need her to be proud of me. I have 18 years, and what if I've got this second chance? And what if 18 years from now, I'm a shitty person who didn't take advantage of every opportunity I got after the second chance? What a waste. What if she sees me and she's like, geez, no wonder. Thank God that I didn't grow up with you. And so I strived and strived and strived and I became this overachiever and I wanted to be massively successful and I got into fitness and I got into entrepreneurship and I wanted to be like everything that was almost perfect. And the year she turned 17, I had, I struggled a lot because I had been through some financial hardships and my marriage wasn't like we, I wasn't exactly where I thought I should be by then. It's like I, I almost had this idea, you know, when when I had her, I had this fantasy. I remembered her as a baby. And then I'd always have this, this reunion fantasy of like the airports and I'm holding a sign and like she gets off the plane or I get off the plane and we hug and there's balloons. And somehow like that's where the story ends. So I never had a picture of like what the reality was. It was like the baby version of her and then the adult, the adult, reunion fantasy, I guess you could call it. And in that adult reunion fantasy, I dreamed that like she would take me to her house and show me where she grew up. And then I would tell her like all my accomplishments, like, look, I'm a millionaire and I'm an author and I'm a, like, I'm this amazing person. And she would be so proud of me. And it's not exactly how it ended. And I'm excited to tell you that one of the best lessons of my life I'm about to share I worked so hard to get the approval of everyone who judged me, of everyone who thought I couldn't make it, but more importantly, I worked really hard to get the approval of my daughter who I hadn't met. And I guess also to make myself realize that I made the right decision because over the years, you questioned, did I do the right thing? Should she? Should I have kept her with me? Is she in the right space? Like, are her parents good to her? Is she in a good place? Is she better off? Could I have done this if she was here? So I was constantly trying to make myself believe I made the right decision. Convince myself, I guess. And when she turned 18, it was a little bit of a, you know, no fanfare. Nothing happened that day. But a few months later, um, I reached out and I sent her some letters and pictures and kind of just opened the gates of, if you do ever want to meet me, I would love to. And it wasn't until almost a year later, almost her 19th birthday, I was in California and she happened to be in California. And I think I emailed her and I just said, hey, I'm going to be here. Let's, let's meet. And she said, sure. And I was terrified. I was terrified. I wasn't quite what I wanted to be yet, but I was on my way. And I thought, you know what? I can't handle this anymore. I'd rather meet her and just see how it goes. Uh, I was so terrified of her rejection. (laughs) I thought she might hate me. I was reading, you know, how adoptees might feel towards their birth parents. And I, you know, read a lot of adoptee stories who were angry. Like, why did you, they felt like they were thrown away or abandoned or given up. And we met on just a very... (laughs) a very nondescript afternoon one o'clock in an IHOP and my ex was driving me and I was so nervous. I go, what do I do? <laughs> you know, do I hug her? She's a stranger. I don't, you know, I don't know if if I'm allowed to. He goes, yes, you can hug her. Just don't make it a creepy hug. And I go, what's a creepy hug? Of course I'm going to creepy hug her. But I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. You know, I've known her her whole life. That doesn't mean she's known me her whole life. I've thought about her every single day for 18 years. That doesn't mean she thinks anything of me. And so it's this weird thing of like, how do you you know, place all this emotion on someone who really doesn't know. Like she doesn't know my story. She doesn't know what she means to me. And and I said, Oh my God. I, you know, of course I've seen pictures and I knew what she looked like, but I go, the one thing I didn't think about was her voice. What does she sound like? So I'm at iHop and I'm looking at my phone and I'm waiting and I just hear this voice. <laughs> she goes, hey there. And they turned around. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could explain how I felt. I gave her a hug and I was like worried I was going to pull away and I felt her still holding on to me. And I felt her kind of crying a little bit. And I did not want that hug to stop. And I got her to sit down and I keep, I think I said to her so many times, I like, go, oh, I can't believe you're so cute. You're so cute. <laughs> and Every doubt, every fear, every worry that I had after seeing her was just gone. She was so perfect. And she was so adorable and so beautiful. And her voice, I can't tell you what hearing her voice meant to me. Like she was real. And... She was so gracious and, you know, the the amazing thing I found was that she wasn't mad at me and she wasn't upset and she was grateful for her life. But the big lesson I learned right then, I was so worried about her being proud of me. And as I left, I realized that I was proud of me. And I actually realized, too, that I didn't care what she thought of me at that point point. I didn't care, not to say I don't care, but it wasn't going to affect me anymore because I realized that everything I had done was for myself and I thought it was for her, but it was really for me and I was really fucking proud of me and I was also really, really fucking proud of her <laughs> and I realized too that I had nothing to do with any of it, that she was just a magical person and being all on her own. And she was, uh, you know, as I remember giving birth to her thinking she was so perfect and she did not ask to be brought into any of this. And no matter what she ever did, it didn't matter because she was perfect. And it made me have compassion for myself thinking I didn't ask to be here either. I didn't ask for all this stuff. And I was brought here completely perfect and unknowing. And as I looked at her, I was able to look at myself in another way with so much more compassion than I ever had and forgive myself for all the mistakes and forgive myself for judging myself so harshly for being pregnant as a teenager and for for not thinking I was worthy and for not thinking I was supposed to be here. And I realized I was absolutely supposed to be here. And she was a big part of that. And, you know, our story um, didn't end there we didn't talk for almost a year and she met her, her biological father the next year. And we've over the last, I guess it'll be two years in May. Yeah. Two years soon. Um, over the last two years, we've developed a relationship slowly and it's been amazing and beautiful. And she inspires me. She's so smart. She's so mature. She's so amazing. And I'm, obviously very biased but I kind of think I'm not biased because I didn't raise her so I can't take credit for it but I'm excited to get her on and I can't wait for you guys to listen to the interview with her I'm going to have her on and ask her just about her experience because I find that you know we have our own experience of we all have we, sh- we have a shared story but the experience is also different on her side. And there were, we were at a podcast launch party and some people were asking her questions that I never thought to ask her. So it actually made me curious and that's why I want to get her on. And she was really brave enough to say yes. And I'm super excited. And I hope that this story can maybe help you guys see in yourself, see yourself in me, see yourself in her, see yourself in, you know, that lost, you know, the lost teenage girl, the lost young person. And how we can create these stories that aren't always true. And one of the reasons why I really, my my platform is to talk about rewriting your story is because I really believe there can be a completely different ending. There can be a different outcome to every story. If my story had ended the way that I thought it would, I wouldn't be here today. I would have been gone 25 years ago, 24 years ago. And... Had I decided that everyone was right about me being pregnant teenager, I could have stayed in that victim mentality and not been on this podcast. I could have been living in a trailer and having six more kids and on welfare and on food stamps and, you know, all of the things that were supposed to have happened to me because of what where I was. And I chose to not have that be my story. And I just want to encourage you that whatever you're in today, whatever your story is that you're in now or that came from whatever age, it's never too late to rewrite that story. It's never too late to change it. And if you are doing something for validation from someone else, for someone else, you know, maybe the the parent you never got it from, I hope that you can see that it doesn't matter what they say or what they think, and that you can just be proud of you. So thank you for listening to this episode. Please check out the next one. It's going to be with my daughter, Miss Courtney Moss, and I cannot wait to hear what she's going to bring to the table and her 20-year-old wisdom. I think she's very brilliant, and I can't wait to share her. All right, you guys, please, um, if you love this or whatever you got from it, I would love to hear your responses. So always shoot me a DM on Instagram, dannyj.com or the Best Life Podcast on Instagram. Of course, you can write in our Facebook group if you go to thebestlifepodcast.com. And we love your reviews and ratings and we appreciate all of you. So thanks.